So I have a lot to say about The Breakfast Club, Peter. Good evening and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast where we connect academic ideas to popular media. My name is Martha Sullivan. I'm one of your capable co-hosts. And today, uh, well, not just today, but most immediately today, I am a hockey fan. Uh, I am joined this week, as always, uh, by my other co-host. I'm Pete Romberg, and I kind of forgot that we start this by uh, saying what we are. So... Tonight, I am forgetful. (laughs) (laughs) It happens. Um, And we are joined today by return guest and friend of the show, Joel Kenyon. Joel, thank you so much for being on here with us tonight. Thanks for having me back, as usual. Uh, Later in the episode, we are going to be talking about our problematic faves. Uh, But before then, uh, before we get into the stuff that you're going to at us about, we want to talk about what's been stuck in our head this week. Um, I am going to start, since I have already designated myself as the hockey fan tonight. Um, I went to a Chicago Wolves game this afternoon, which was super fun. Uh, And also, uh, a series of sort of escalating conversations led to my realization that one of the things that I desire in life is a much richer sports mascot lore world. (laughs) Um, I would like there to be sagas and rivalries and sketches before sports teams take the field uh wherein mascots develop wwe like relationships and storylines uh part of this desire is also from the philadelphia flyers announcement of their new mascot which is a horrible off-brand muppet thing named gritty it's so perfect for philly (laughs) it is so Um, perfect for philly I would really like a world in which the Chicago Wolves mascot, Skates, who is an appropriately frightening-looking wolf, uh, develops a rivalry that culminates in him eating Gritty. I would pay to see that. Yes. Right? So that's what is stuck in my head right now. Pete, where are you at Uh, in terms of your pop culture life? (laughs) Well, before I get into that, um, I just saw a video of some college marching band where they... uh, had their dancers come out all in T-Rex costumes, like those giant inflatable T-Rex costumes, uh, as they were playing the Jurassic Park song. So that's not what stuck in my head, but you talking about sports mascot rivalries made me think of that delightful video. I did have a moment where I was like, is sport? Is this podcast the correct venue for sports? But then I thought, it's all theater. Yeah. It's all pageantry. <laughs> yeah. They're wearing costumes. Give me, like, the... The long-suffering friendship between uh, the cubby bear, who probably has a name that Bill's going to yell at me for forgetting about, and, like, the White Sox Gonzo monster. Like, give them a story. (laughs) Give them stuff to do. Oh, yeah. I think you just need to start watching wrestling. That's all. Let's just need to start watching wrestling. Uh, Or writing more fan fiction. (laughs) Fan fiction about wrestling with mascots. Yes, wrestling mascots. I was going to say, I'm not even going to Google that because I'm sure it already exists. Mm-hmm. You're going to get the furry market. Uh, also that. <laughs> I apologize in advance for that suggestion. <laughs> we did an episode on that, which was oh. enlightening, I think. It was a fascinating documentary. <laughs> I'll, I'll put it like that. Um, 
My uh, uh, thing stuck in my head this week is a podcast from uh, 99% Invisible called Articles of Interest, which is all about clothing. So, um, yes, there's an episode entirely dedicated to why women's clothing doesn't have pockets. Uh, there was an episode about blue jeans, an episode about, like, punk culture, um, an episode about kids' clothes. It's, I think, the fifth episode came out this week, and it's just a really sort of fascinating look into this world of things that we all wear but usually don't think about at all. Um, and it's from the 99% Invisible crew who do good podcasts for nerdy, design-oriented people. I have never... Well, no, that's not true. Um, I was deeply annoyed once when I saw somebody on Twitter claim that clothing was not political. Oh, and clothing's it's like, totally political. My dude. Yeah. <laughs> My dude, ask any woman how deeply she would appreciate pockets in all of her pants. Also, you say my dude, I am guessing, and I'm sure I'm right, that the person saying that was a white dude. Oh, yeah. Yep. I, I didn't even specify because I kind of thought that that was, like, a given. Yep. It wasn't me. I believe <laughs> you. <laughs> I've never thought of it that way, but it wasn't me. No, it's just, like... The, the, the fashion industry as a whole is so brutally political and misogynistic that it, it was sort of flabbergasting to me that somebody wouldn't understand that. Mm -hmm. Take a listen to the, like, the, the episode on, on pockets and women's clothing, it hits that a lot. The one that was most interesting to me was the one about kids' clothing, because there's a lot of, like, specific rules and regulations about kids' clothing, which is why it looks the way it does. Like, anything that a child could conceivably sleep in has to be, like, flame retardant. So yep. if, if somebody is going to make a thing that is not, like, that they don't want to use flame retardant materials in, it's got to be covered in, like, glitter and sparkles and be uncomfortable to wear so that they can, like, quote-unquote, prove that a child wouldn't use it as sleepwear. Oh. Huh. Yeah. So, Joel, what's stuck in your head this week? <laughs> I was just trying to think if any of my uh, sleepwear has any sparkles, glitters, or, or other things on it. <laughs> I don't think it does. Um, <clears throat> well, I, of course, with Halloween season coming up, uh, I'm uh, an avid horror lover anyway. But specifically this time of year, everybody else around me joins in. So I feel a little bit less like a freak. And uh, specifically, the new Halloween movie is coming out this week, this Friday. Yes. Which it's been, it's been 40 years. Great reviews too. That's what I'm excited about because I've been following it since um, uh, David Gordon Green and God, I can never remember his name. He's found him down. Thank you. Yeah. Um, had said that they pitched the idea to Bloomhouse. I've been following this from day one and excitedly kind of you know holding my breath. And when I saw the trailer, I got excited. And when I started to see the reviews and even Rotten Tomatoes. You know, both sides of it seem to be pretty pumped about it. And the fact that they're retconning everything after the first film, which I thought from basically four through eight, it got a little bit ridiculous. And <laughs> I kind of, uh, yeah. So I'm curious to see what happens. And then that and, you know, I can't help not talk about Halloween, which um, being an artist and... Is that like Inktober? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
except that instead of having a single word to give you a, an idea to work off of, it gives you a theme. Um, like today's was the coffee shop coven. So <laughs> since, since I have two kids who are artists as well, you know, we do it together every night. We sit down for an hour and we, we do our drawing together. And um, so it's become, this is our second year of doing it. So it's kind of become a tradition. That's amazing. That's bad. Yeah. Yeah. So if you go on my Facebook page, you can check it out. I post every day. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited about the Halloween reboot. I've also been watching people on my Twitter timeline all weekend tweeting about the new Netflix show, The Haunting of Hill House, mm-hmm. uh, uh, yes. which I don't know how closely it is related to the um, the novel or the various film iterations, but it does sound like people are enjoying it quite a bit. So I'm looking forward to that. I am new-ish to horror film. Um, I'm a giant wuss, so it's been sort of an acclimation process because I really do, I enjoy a lot of horror things, but then also I get scared by like movie trailers. So it's been a little, it's been a sort of a, like I said, an acclimation process. I Um, like the idea of horror movies sometimes more than actually the, the like process of watching them. I frequently have to wiki the entire plot lines of horror movies just so I know what's coming (laughs) um, before I can actually, because then I just spend the entire time being anxious about what's going to happen and I can't like enjoy any of it Um, because I don't really, I don't really like to be scared though. (laughs) I I just like, I just like weird stuff. Well, (laughs) you've You've decided to jump into the genre at a good time then, because um, right now with the whole death wave movement that's happening and you're in my wheelhouse right now. So um, there's a lot of very intelligent horror films coming out and things that are kind of uh, fringy where they kind of cross over into the mainstream a bit more. So, you know, you you can like it for not just the, you know, the, the horror aspects of it, but the actual story writing um and the plot and the acting. So it's it's come a, a long way with it's, the horror community is kind of divided on how they feel on that topic. Yeah. But I'm of the mind that anything to legitimize it and to make it even better, um, you know, I'll take my my cheap slasher film that is wash, pin, rinse, repeat. But I also like to have something like Get Out or Hereditary where, you know, it, it takes it kind of to a whole new level. So you picked a good time. Well, and I loved Get Out. Um, although I felt weird watching it because there was a lot in Get Out that I thought was really funny, uh, but no one else was laughing. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'm horror is a genre of literature that I have always loved, and a genre of film that I am uh, developing more of an affinity for. All right, I think we're going to take a short recess now, and when we come back, we are going to be discussing problematic faves. are discussing problematic favorites. Uh, You may have noticed in the media 
that as our awareness of the people who create the media that we love uh, increases, as we become more aware of what our favorite creators are like in real life, um, there is a, uh, a pretty distinct potential there that exists for us to find out that our, our favorite creators, our, our media heroes, are actually pretty terrible people. Uh, so we decided to take an episode and examine uh, some of the things, some of the media that we love or have loved, um, where we have discovered that creators or people involved with them in some way uh, are actually garbage human beings, uh, and how that has changed our relationship to those works. Um, I would like to start this discussion with... Mm, are we, are we going up to 100 first, or are we starting with a, a I was, slow build? I was going to say, I, I think <laughs> I'd like to start with Joel. <laughs> oh, starting um, at 100. Uh, all yeah, right. We, we have a pretty good mix of like direct creators and people adjacent to and the face of, and I think I'd like to just start by blowing up the dynamite. Uh, so, Joel, why don't you tell us what homework you assigned for us this week? Um, well, at the time when you approached me to, to join you, um, the Bill Cosby verdict was just fresh on, I mean, it basically just happened. And this has been a huge news story that's been going on for quite a while now. So, I mean, when you get somebody that's that level of fame, it kind of hits pretty hard. So, um, I had specifically, um, decided that we should go with um i mean the original the cosby show um and i'd like to from a personal standpoint touch on a couple of other aspects but the cosby show itself was what i suggested so i understand that i am not the typical uh experience for this show i had never seen it before watching it for this show same uh, for this episode uh, but why don't oh you gosh. give us just a... <laughs> it, I, it, might be, it might be a generational thing. Um, but Joel, why don't you oh, give us just I... a real mm. quick synopsis of what the Cosby Show is all about. Um, and just a real quick, real quick, because we don't have this kind of time, uh, breakdown <laughs> of the controversies surrounding Bill Cosby. Which I should have thought of the... Yes, there is a bit of an age gap, but... Um, well, the basic premise of the show is you've got this, this the Huxtable family, which they're an upper class, upper class um, African-American family. Mom's a lawyer. Dad's a, a, a obstetrician gynecologist. They live um, in New York and in, in Brooklyn Heights in like a, a walk up. Um, they're very well off. Uh, they're very intelligent, very well respected in the community. Um, and, you know, it kind of portrayed this whole other aspect of african-american life that up to that point you really hadn't seen i mean you could maybe make a point for something like the jeffersons where you know they live on the east side in a deluxe apartment in the sky but um you know here you've got two very um different characters with a family that has very you know real family problems and everything that every aspect of white america has been shown on television for years and it just took off. I mean, it just became this huge kind of behemoth of a show. Um, and, you know, it was, it was basically like a, a family-friendly comedy show, like a Full House or 
Family Ties or something like that. It just had pretty much an entirely African-American cast. Um, and so what happened was um, I was trying to find the exact when this all kind of the alleged stuff started coming out. I want to say it was about 2015. Some of it was earlier on, even as early as, you know, the 60s. There were some allegations, but there were um, all in all 60 um, counts that were alleged against him of either sexual assault or rape. And primarily there was uh, a lot of talk about being drugged. And um, so, you know, a lot of the women maybe didn't realize initially or weren't sure if it was something that really happened. And, you know, he was convicted. So he is uh, off the jail. But, I mean everybody's opinion of kind of America's dad was no longer valid. And that took a pretty hard hit to a lot of people, including myself, you know, cause I grew up watching him. So. I was going to ask, what was your relationship to this show? Um, before, before of the allegations against Bill Cosby. I, I missed the first part of your question. Sorry. Uh, what was your relationship to this show? Uh, before the allegations started um, kind of coming out? Well, he was he was a, a, a somewhat of a hero just because, I mean, when I was growing up, the Bill Cosby himself comedy special, I probably watched it at least once a week, if not a couple times a week. It was just mm. my, it was like a, a regiment, you know, me and my two next door neighbors, you know, whenever we'd hang out, we'd either put Jumpin' Jack Flash on with Whoopi Goldberg or Bill Cosby himself. Um, so I know that whole routine, that, that whole comedy set, I know it backwards and forwards. And then when the show came on, I mean, it was a constant, I watched it, you know, it was on every day once it was in syndication and I, I watched it incessantly. And, um, so for me, I got a lot of, um, uh, you know, positive images of, uh, you know, him based on the character he played and then kind of seeing what he did outside of that and, and, um, uh, that Albert show, you know, watch that cartoon. Um, so he was one of those guys that was just kind of everywhere in my youth. And he seemed just like this really stand up, good, solid, kind man. Um, you know, like I said, he was kind of America's dad, even though he was black, it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things that was, was amazing about him is that, so many people didn't see color anymore. They just saw Bill Cosby. <laughs> I don't know how else to put that. Um, and that's pretty amazing. So I, I had real, <laughs> because I had no relationship to this show before, like it wasn't something I watched growing up. It was just something like I knew of Bill Cosby as that kind of father figure that you're talking about. Like that was, how I think he existed in the cultural consciousness. So even though I didn't have a pre-existing relationship with the show, um, I, I, I still like had an awareness of him as that kind of upstanding guy. But watching the show, not having any kind of nostalgic grounding in it, I mean, I had trouble getting through an episode because that was all I could think about. 
was the um you know the 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 allegations that have yeah the allegations and the convictions and all of that like that i i could not get away from that watching the show um and i think part of that is just because i i didn't have any nostalgia to lean on Mm -hmm. um pete what was your yeah so how did you feel watching it so like you i also didn't have any like experiential nostalgia like bill cosby as as a comedian and as like a, a, a popular culture presence certainly you know pervaded the background radiation of everything but he was almost more of a caricature you know like the was it simpsons or family guy with the jello pudding pops thing um <laughs> rather yeah. than the actual like show um and i also like even before all the allegations against him were coming out he had that like he was in a weird place because he was all in on uh, respectability politics in the african-american community a lot of like you know pull your pants up and like talk white and then that will solve our problems which was always like that in and of itself was kind of a problematic stance because it's you know not going in, in there but like that was sort of part of my association with cosby is like he's jello pudding pop guy and he's respectability politics um Watching the show, I it didn't affect me in the same way that it affected you, Martha, of being, like, unable to escape it. Like, it was in the back of my mind as I was watching it, but it wasn't overwhelming my, my watching of it. More it's just the fact that I never watched any of, like, the 80s and 90s family sitcoms. Like, I've never seen The Full House, um... Or, or, or even, like, you know, the old, like, any of the 80s ones, Jefferson's, whatever, never saw any of those. And even in the 90s, like, the Nickelodeon, Closer Explains It Alls or whatever, never watched any of those. So it's a kind of show that I have been barely, minimally exposed to. Um, and so that was really more in the in the front of my mind of, like, right, this was the, like, the water cooler pop culture comedy kind of show when it was happening it's a kind of show that doesn't exist in the same way anymore um and so i like as i was thinking those like broader pop culture thoughts also in the back was like and also like that's bill cosby convicted rapist so complex thoughts well i was a home improvement person which mm, mm, yeah we could have talked about that one too (laughs) Well, and Joel, you were thinking of assigning Louis C.K., which would have had, um, it wouldn't have the same, like, America's dad sense of, like, betrayal, but it, it's it's very much a similar thing of, like, this is a, a male comic who is dominating the comic world for a time, um, and, and then accusations come out, and then he isn't. Uh, C.K. is very different because he hasn't been convicted and he's trying to come back, but like it, it's definitely not a one-off thing of, you know, male comics being terrible. Well, and the, the, the thing is with Cosby, I couldn't even bring myself to, um, to watch any of it. Cause I had initially had intended on even trying to watch himself. And I just, I felt so skeevy about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because I just felt like, you know, like it was a relative, 
almost that I, I didn't want to be associated with anymore because I didn't want to have that that stench on my my eyeballs, so to right. speak. Um, but with Louis C.K., my relationship was a little different because in the fact that in the modern sense, you know, me now versus me as a kid, I related to him as kind of a uh, an analog for myself being mm -hmm. a divorced man with two kids who's, you know, kind of learning to date again. And um, I, I really um, connected with his show. And that's the first time I'd ever really seen him was was in, in Louis. So I became an avid watcher of it and just fell in love with that character. And um, he fascinated me as a, an individual. And then when this came out again, same kind of situation, although his allegations are a little different. Yeah. Um, more so that he was using his celebrity to kind of take advantage of a situation where, you know, exposing himself and things like that. And he's, I think, honestly, humbly apologized for it. And I think he means it. But at the same time, I still feel kind of like I have those I have this the first two seasons on my shelf and I kind of feel like maybe I need to get rid of them almost. And that, it makes me feel a little guilty and a little weird um, turn, now. Turn the DVDs around so you don't see the uh, the title <laughs> on the spine. <laughs> right. So somebody comes over they're like, oh, no, he's not going to do that, is he? Um <laughs> But it's a big problem with with the media in general these days is because you can't you can't not have um, your private you can't have your privacy anymore. Um, and no matter how small it is of what you do, it turns into something bigger. And that's maybe something to talk about at the end. But it's it's a side effect of today's Internet. Uh, Pete. Yes, I would like you. I would like you to go next. Cool. Um, <laughs> I assigned John Hughes's *The Breakfast Club*, which is uh, the quintessential '80s teen um, click dramedy. movie. Yeah, dramedy. Um, you know, five teens all from different cliques are doing detention on a Saturday. They live. They love. They learn. Laughs are shared. Tears are shared. They all realize that they all hate their parents, and, um, yeah, I mean, everyone's seen The Breakfast Club, uh, except for Martha until this show. Um, Correct. What? <laughs> oh, my gosh. This has been You're like reader, an 80s though, learning you? experience for Martha. I am a reader. Um, but I'm a yeah. movie person. Uh, so, I don't mean yes. that in a bad way. Well, and, and so, like, I, I assigned this not because of any um, stories of bad behavior about anyone involved necessarily, but because I, I think it's a sort of like a perfect time capsule movie where it doesn't it hasn't aged well like there are there are moments and and bits in it where you're just like oh that is not great um in this the year 2019 but i think it like not having been a high schooler in the 80s um it feels very true to capturing what that experience would have been like um and and i think that is useful to sort of have and see and like be this cornerstone but i also like it's hard to grapple with it when you're like it's a time capsule that it, that's what it was like back then maybe um or at least how it was being filtered through through the media which then informs how other people you know how how mainstream culture um you know draws its cues from um but then like can you still laugh at it and can you still enjoy it now without the intellectual cap on of time capsule, like as a raw film, does it still work? 
um, because it no. is it is very aged. Yeah. So no for Martha. I'm I'm gonna take a hard stance on this one, guys. This this is not a good movie. Hmm. Uh, because of the problematic wow. bits, or just because it's just like as a movie, it doesn't hold up. Uh, both. Um, I could have done without the misogynistic and ableist language. Yep, that was I a big thing I was thinking without, of when I designed it. Um, I could have done without the two-dimensional characters. Uh, I think it's a huge problem that it's not until ten minutes before the movie ends that we even start finding out why they're in detention. Um, I felt like the end of the movie asked me to have feelings about characters that it had never bothered to tell me anything about beyond, like superficial trope shorthand. Um, I was not into this movie at all. Hmm. I, I, it had been a long time since I'd seen it. I I understand that this movie is a pop, like, I I get that I might be on the, I'm, I'm in the minority on this, but I watched it and I was like, teen drama is something that we do so much better now that I don't understand the reverence that people still hold this movie with. Part of it might be like what Joel was saying with um, Cosby show of just like nostalgia, like people who grew up with this movie look back on it fondly, even if they haven't seen it in a long time. And I had not seen this in a long time. Um, That being said, I thought it held up better than you're, you're giving it. So yeah, different opinions. Well, and and for me, I mean, it, I was 11 when it came out, and so I didn't see it until I was older. And I've this is maybe the third time I've seen it, and I've always enjoyed it. I, I think partially because of nostalgia, because you know I grew up in that that time period. Um, I wasn't too far off of their ages, but I personally, and <laughs> I don't want to make myself look bad or anything, but I felt like no, not at all. Um, I felt like it was a, a good kind of broad generalization of the different classes. Now, they're highly stereotypical. They are very, um, you know, kind of one note as far as, as their portrayal, but they do kind of hit the high points of what, uh, in broad terms, each of those groups would have been characterized as. And it kind of, I thought some of the messages that were there were positive, um, I thought there was a lot of things that were also negative about it, but at the same time, there was some uh, understanding that happened between the different kind of caste systems that happened in, in, in a high school setting that maybe somebody might not think about if they didn't see the film. And like you said, there may be more modern versions of it or takes on you know that whole uh the problem that kids deal with these days and and have always dealt with. But I, I thought in almost like, um, I want to say cartoony, but in, in a, in a really simplistic kind of boiled down form, it, it, it's broad. Yeah. It, it breaks down those stereotypes and there's some understanding. And by the end of the film, they all relate to each other a little better because they realize that no matter where they come from and what their background is, they all have ultimately the same issues that they're dealing with. They're kids. They've got parents that they don't get along with. They've got uh, authority figures that sometimes are positive, sometimes are negative, and they're all kind of butting heads against each other because they've been placed in these 
little boxes by what they are into, you know, whether it's sports or fashion or, uh, you know, the math club. And that puts a stigma on them and therefore they're considered a different part of society just because of their own personal enjoyment. And I don't know if it's that way as much anymore, but I, 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 it was a huge trope in the movies at the time. And I, I found it to be a positive experience personally. Well, and I don't disagree. I don't disagree with any of that. Um, I think the message of the movie is still clear and also good. I guess what I object to are the tools that the movie uses to get that message across. I I will say the the character I had the most trouble with was Ali Sheedy. Oh. Um, <laughs> because I felt like the movie was using a lot of not great um, mental illness shorthand. Um, yeah, very much the 80s movie, like weirdo with a capital W we can make fun of people with mental illnesses because that's funny and not like something that we're at all sensitive about. I also hated it at the end when suddenly she's pretty and Emilio Estevez was like, Oh, now I can like be okay with being attracted to you <laughs> because I, you look like a normal person now. I was more okay with that than with uh, Molly Ringwald and Bender because that basically came out of nowhere whereas at least earlier in the film they had Ali Sheedy and Emilio Estevez like having one-on-one moments like starting to build that a little bit oh see I assumed that's where Molly Ringwald and the 31 year old high school student um <laughs> I, I I had sort of assumed that was where that was going in the first place mm. because the the princess and the bad boy is such a heavy teen drama trope but i i think that so many of the tropes that we have now like including the ali sheedy gets a makeover and now like you know she she tossles her hair and takes her glasses off and now she's gorgeous um she's all that yeah right exactly uh yes <laughs> I, I like so much of that i think stems from this so like martha you said that um and this might have been before we started recording that like it's there are so many more examples of movies like this now and they're all done better um and I can't speak to that myself because it's a genre I don't usually watch. But I would also say that, like, usually the first ones set the groundwork and don't age well because they're not as, like, complex or as developed as ones that are using that groundwork to, like, further the genre. Well, and the landscape little... changes, too. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's a little bit like Watchmen or The Killing Joke for me, where I can appreciate the place that those comics have in comic and superhero history, mm -hmm. but also there's better stuff now. So can we please move on? Right. Well, and I think that's kind of where we do on 41 14 is kind of say, you know, Hey, there is other things out there that are, um, you know, worthwhile and just as good or better than some of the things that, you know, are revered and you don't have to get rid of those things, but you know, take a look at these other things too. And I agree with the whole thing with Ali Sheedy. I don't know that, I don't know how much of her uh, storyline was just an act and how much of it was really, truly, uh, you know, a, a mental illness issue. But I always took, even when I saw it when I was much younger, the the sequence where she gets a makeover and all of a sudden I was like, she was attractive and interesting and funny before. 
she doesn't i actually found her to be less so when yep. they did that because it yeah. wasn't yep. her she wasn't herself anymore and that, that always right. bothered me yeah but you were you going to ask a question pete earlier you had said my name and then we got oh uh, oh and then i cut you off <laughs> no that's fine <laughs> well i was just it's wondering terrible you're uh like joe you're much closer to the high school of this movie than like martha and i were so did it ring like obviously broad hollywood like stereotype true but still true to like to the you know high school of the 80s um well i i started <laughs> high school in 89 and i was in a smaller high school so at the time um you know, it was such a small school that you didn't have room for clicks. It was sure. either you you liked each other or you didn't. But I did um, in my senior year, I transferred to an all art magnet high school, which was huge. And I did find that there was I, you know, I was part of the theater group. So there, you know, there was you had your theater geeks. We didn't have a sports team because at an all art magnet high school, they wouldn't allow it. <laughs> um, <laughs> we had a mask. The teams would lose every game, so it wouldn't matter anyway. Well, they were too worried about their dancers breaking their legs or whatever, but we had a mascot, um, which never made sense to me. <laughs> but, you know, it was a little different clicks because we had the the the, uh, the visual artist, which is a program I was in, but I started, ended up with the theater people because I was doing theater, but you had the dance, you had the music, um, and you had the, the writers. And so everybody kind of had their little pocket that they were in but it wasn't as extreme as they make it out in these mm -hmm. and i don't know i mean having a daughter who's uh, a sophomore um i i don't hear too many stories about you know things being that segregated like the jocks versus the brains versus the whatever right yeah it, it, it's almost um I don't know if, if it's if it's broken down or I'm just not, you know, I'm not firsthand in it. So I don't know what her perception of it is, but I'd be curious to find out. Um, it's too bad we don't have any high schoolers that we could go shadow for a day. <laughs> oh, we could do 21 Jump Street style. We could go undercover. But, well, and, and the, the previous episode. Sometimes people still think I'm in high school. <laughs> <laughs> I get my 30s. That's as far back as they'll go. Um. Uh, the, the one other random thing that I, I thought of as you were talking about this was like, as all these various people grew up, I think of all of them, Anthony Michael Hall probably grew up to be like a not great tech bro from Silicon Valley who feels entitled about things like because he he was the bully nerd. But like that is the current winning generation. So uh, can I just sidebar real fast to talk about how the part where he admits that the reason he's in detention is because they found a gun in his locker. And I was like, pause. Yep. You got one day of detention for that? I mean, well, it's clearly not a good school. The assistant principal is maybe the worst educator I've ever seen in films. It's also in Chicago. Did you catch that bit? Yes. North suburb. Um, well, John Hughes, yeah, being yeah. John Hughes, did, all of his movies are set in Chicago for the most part. Uh, it's the... Or around... It's the same school that they shot the interior school scenes for Ferris Bueller. So, Pete, I have a question. Yeah. Um, why, what made you pick this movie for this episode? Because... By the way, it was like, a flare it... gun, so... Oh, so that's fine. Oh, was it? I missed <laughs> yeah. that part. It, um, yeah, it was a flare gun. 
So, so, so I because in it, I feel like in the scheme of media, like you have dated and you have problematic, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure this crosses the line between because you have like the way that the '80s treated people, which was not as great, right? Um, so I, I this is coming from sort of a twofold thought process where. Um, when we had the, like, around about when we had the time to do this episode of, of Problematic Faves, um, I think Vox had a think piece out about um, 16 Candles. Because uh, it was around oh. Brett Kavanaugh and all that. There's a plot point in 16 Candles where a drunk girl is literally just passed around. Um, and that's comedy, because the 80s. Um, so that would have been a better pick in terms of Problematic but I've never seen Sixteen Candles, and so it's not a fave. Um, so I is this? Uh, it, it's a movie that I like, and I have very strong nostalgic opinions about. Uh, I hadn't seen it in a long time, but it was one that I like. I like John Hughes movies in general. Um, I I really again haven't seen it in a while. Really enjoy Ferris Bueller. Um, really enjoy this. Uh, Home Alone is fun. Um, so I, I was thinking of John Hughes 80s movies in general because of the think piece about 16 Candles and then thought about how poorly, like, like Breakfast Club has everything you were saying of the, like, doesn't treat people well, um, because it's the 80s. So I was kind of looking to explore the boundaries and the ideas of, um, like problematic, not just because the creators are garbage, but because it is a window into a time when our society simply had different expectations and whether that like influences us very strongly. Um, thinking about too, like, like watching, you know, movies or shows from the nineties or the early aughts where like, uh, we're just going to casually drop a fag in here as like a joke, like reference and watching any of those. Now you're just like, Oh, that's not great. Um, so I like, that was sort of the direction I was coming from was, how enjoyable are these still when we as like a, a culture have sort of moved beyond it pretty far and how, how much can we put in the backseat the idea that like it was the eighties things were like, this was what our culture was telling us um, versus like, is that going to negatively impact our enjoyment of them? And you almost have to disconnect the two because you can't go back and watch um like an Al Jolson clip and say, okay, well that's extremely racist. I mean, it's still, uh, it's, it's like a, it's almost like a time capsule of that period. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it's almost like you disassociate yourself from what it means now and look at it from the perspective of what it is then and what it represented and what, you know, kind of what not to do. Uh, and I, when you mentioned um, 16 candles, it made me think of revenge of the nerds, which yes, I I remember being, you know, it was a big deal when I was a kid. This was a movie you're not supposed to watch. And I've since, um, I I actually own that. It was like a three set that there was, um, that had comedies and it was one of them that was on there. And I hadn't seen it in probably 15, 20 years. So I watched it and there's, you know, basically a, uh, there's the voyeurism scene, which of course would be, is illegal enough on its own. But then when you take into account that, you know, they're a bunch of boys and high school girls and there's the panty raid and then there's the essentially a date rape that happens. And then they end up together because, you know, oh, you're a nerd and you were fantastic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
rape by mistaken identity. You wouldn't or, have or that concealed in... identity. Yeah. Right. And if it would happen in a movie today, it would be treated in a lot different fashion than it was treated in that film or they would do it in such a way that you could get away with it without having the same overtones. Mm -hmm. But again, you kind of have to look at it. Well, the times are different and the writing was different. And that's, I almost can pass Al Jolson and be okay with that versus this. And and like that, that's all true. But also like, you know, seeing as like, this is coming sort of, I was thinking about this, like on the, the tale of, of the Kavanaugh hearings and everything, it's like that is when he was growing up. That is what culture was telling boys and and girls both that that was okay because like that's comedy, that's fine. Um, and I, I think that it like as much as we all love John Hughes movies and and other comedies, grappling with that and what that has created for an entire generation of people, um, I think is something important to sort of analyze as part of our enjoyment of it. Like. Is it enjoyable well, while still and, being deeply discomforted by it? And culturally accepted is not the same as okay. Right. That's a good point. Like it's, um, it, it's illegal in the 80s as well, but, you know. Kids being kids. Boys will be boys, yeah. Ugh. Yep. And that, that's a that's a big theme, actually, when you look at a lot of those films. It, is it was. It was... Oh, it's just the boys being the boys. I mean, Ogre in in Revenge of the Nerds, well, the whole, that whole fraternity, I mean, they're essentially giant bullies, you know, that are doing a lot of horrific things that nowadays would be, get them expelled pretty quickly, Mm -hmm. or at least some major repercussions. Uh, So I asked you both to reread, I I hope, I think. Yes. Reread for both Mm -hmm. of, for everybody here. Uh, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the first Harry Potter book, wherein our hero Harry discovers that he is not just an abused and orphaned uh, 11-year-old boy, but he is in fact a wizard and the most specialist wizard of all, who at some point will defeat the evil wizard and save the world. He's a lizard, Gary. Um, Yes. You're a (laughs) lizard, Harry. Um... So Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone is the story of his first year at Hogwarts, uh, where he defeats Voldemort for the first time. Um, There is a big Christmas scene, and everyone is very enchanted before we all had a moment of, uh, once, um, uh, whatever the second book is called, Chamber Uh, of Secrets came out. Yeah. Um, So I picked this not necessarily because the material itself I find to be problematic, but because J.K. Rowling seems incredibly intent on dismantling my love for her property uh, piece by retroactive piece. Um, This chronicle started several years ago when she issued a statement that said that, oh, even though there's no evidence in any of the books, Dumbledore has been gay this whole time. Uh, What followed was a fairly consistent a pattern of retconning diversity into her books where none uh, visibly existed, uh, which smacks very hard of performative allyism uh, and has, you know, skipped along through all sorts of fun twists and turns. Uh, The Native American racism of her North American magic house was very troubling when the Pottermore stuff came out. Uh, And most recently, 
uh, her statements on continuing to support Johnny Depp being in the Fantastic Beasts franchise, um, and just a whole a whole slew of bad behavior on the part of our creator J.K. Rowling. Where to start with this one? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so. Some of it smacks as performative allyship, but some of it also feels a little bit like she wrote the books in the 90s and early aughts, society has progressed, she wants the books to progress with it, and is retroactively changing it. I That, that drives me less crazy than you, mostly because I generally don't pay that much attention to it. Um, the Johnny Depp thing drives me up the wall because it's literally a world with magic. You have one line of, oh, magic shape-changing. Now he's any other actor or actress that you want. Problem solved. Um, so, yeah, that, that part absolutely is infuriating. The rest of it, mostly because I don't pay that close attention to it, I can happily go about my life reading the books, watching the movies that I enjoy, and saying, yay, I'm a Ravenclaw. <laughs> well i wondered I, initially when you um suggested this i was like what the heck did jk rowling do i thought she was kind of you know um philanthropic with her money and you know was this kind of um really kind of everybody liked jk rowling but i didn't realize that there was all this um george lucasing happening it's mm, a good way to put it where i mean what's what's better do you go back and try and change something that's already become part of the the lexicon of of uh, modern uh, you know kids well and adult literature i guess or do you leave it be and and write new material that touches on whatever your issues are that you're trying to now go back and say hey i was cool back you know 30 years ago i guess the big issue I'm, I'm going to focus for the moment on Dumbledore. Um, the big issue there is that she has not only, like, she not only came out and said, oh, yeah, Dumbledore is totally gay, but now we have a chance to put that into the canon of the text. Like, they have a chance to put that on screen, and they're not going to. Mm. So, um, really? So, yes. Um, and she has an admittedly high level of control over the movies that are made out of her property. So it's not like she has the excuse that a lot of writers do where they're like, I don't have that much control over the adaptation of my material. This is something that she has just said has a chance to prove and won't. But they're not going to give um, Dumbledore like a, a female love interest. They're just going to keep him asexual basically in these films. In, in at least this upcoming film. That's a question, not a statement. Yes. But, okay. I, I mean, how much do we talk on even on this oh, podcast yeah, yeah, about yeah. how much representation matters? Totally. I, I just wanted so, to no, clarify. I guess, no, they're not straight-washing Dumbledore, but they're also not... They're, they're leaving it off screen. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the Johnny Depp thing is trash for a lot of reasons, uh, first, I would like to point out, Aww. well, well, okay, so they fired one of the actors off of one of the original Harry Potter movies because he got caught growing weed. Hmm. <laughs> but Johnny Depp gets to 
beat Amber Heard up, and that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> he's not even know, an interesting Grindelwald, like Michael Fassbender, people. He's right there. He does German accents better. And I should also say, I should also just come out and say that, like, my relationship with the original material, I don't think has changed that much. Like, the the books, the relationship that I have with those books, I, I can still reread them. And I'm more cognizant of the fact that everyone, almost everyone in them is default white. Um, that some of the, the characters that are not, there are some fairly insulting aspects to them particularly in their names uh, I think they have some troubling class issues happening but also I can still read them with fairly pure enjoyment it is really my engagement with the expanded world that has suffered mm -hmm. rather than my relationship with the original material and I don't know if that is me being able to separate those things in my mind and just consider the original Harry Potter independently of the creator uh, and whether that makes me hypocritical that I can do that for Harry Potter, but not for other stuff. I, it also feels a little bit to me like the, the seven books and the eight movies um, of the original set were a piece like the, that was it, and I have no problem sort of, like, drawing a line between that and everything afterwards. Um, I watched Fantastic Beasts. I thought it had a lot of structural problems, and I was like, here's how you make this a better two movies uh, instead of one complicated movie. But, like, I don't know. I enjoy watching people do magic and stuff. It was still had that fun feel to it, but it was so different than the heptilogy of like of the actual harry potter stuff that i'm like it's basically an entirely different thing um and, and i know that's not quite the same as what you're talking about of like divorcing the creator from the content but i feel like this is the box of content one when the creator was this kind of person and this is the box of content two where the creator is now this other kind of person and that does have an impact um going back to Cosby, like, Cosby was, uh, you know, date-raping women back while he was doing the Cosby show. So it's not like he was actually clean-cut then and then became terrible. Um, and I, I don't think that would necessarily excuse it either. But, like, this is sort of like Rowling was doing some stuff in the, in the 90s and early aughts, finished that, now she's doing some other stuff. It feels very different. So I, like, I feel like that's why I'm able at least to, like, draw a line between the two. Well... Even though... Oh, sorry, Jill. Oh, I was just going to say, but is it also a fact that you're... It's easier to divorce yourself from the creator when, if in a, at least in, in the books, in that situation, what you love about the books is the books themselves and the characters within the books. The person that wrote them is kind of in the background, whereas with, you know, the Cosby show, he is the focal point. He's the man you're watching that's entertaining you. And it's a little bit harder to divorce yourself from that background. Or even with the films, the the subject matters and the themes are a little bit harder to to separate because it that's the whole point of the movie. But I was thinking about it. Well, what about like uh, music? 
you know, like Gary Glitter is a convicted pedophile, but yet, you know, the, (laughs) hey, you know. I I was this close to assigning Kanye to you guys, uh, but I haven't (laughs) listened to his last album because I'm done with Kanye, so. (laughs) But is it, is it, you know, does, does the, the type of media that we're talking about change our, you know, your perspective on the creator because of what they're putting out? Hmm. Um, uh, and I'm trying to think like, um, I'm a huge uh, beat generation for me, for literature, that's what I love the most, but you know, here's William S. Burroughs who shot his wife. Kerouac is is objectively a terrible person. Uh, Right. But I, but I, on the road, um, uh, you know, is what got me into the, 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 I don't know what you want to call it genre. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Um, like everybody else did, but I found out that there was so much more there to enjoy, but I don't ever put their, uh, their actual, you know, lives into my head when I'm reading it, I'm reading about the characters that they gave life to. Well, and how, how often have we all had this discussion about HP Lovecraft? Mm -hmm. Like dude was super racist. (laughs) And it's in, Um, and it's in his books. Like, well, and that's that is what I kind of wanted to come down to is I think that it is easier I think it's easier to separate the artist from the art when the artist is dead. I I was thinking um, reading Harry Potter how glad I am that Tolkien died in the 70s. <laughs> also pretty racist. I again, but nobody cared back then, so it was fine. He has a, a much better reputation. Well, and I, I also think that part of that is that, like, Rowling is talking about things that matter to us right now. Mm-hmm. Like, the things that she says are, like, she is actively making statements that affect people and how they feel and how they are represented on screen. Like, Cosby's actions affected people that are alive today, whereas, like, H.P. Lovecraft was super racist 100 years ago. And because he's not actively saying or making statements or being a virulent human being now, it's a little bit easier to say, well, he was garbage, but I'm still going to read Shadow over Innsmouth and enjoy it because it's creepy and delightful. Um, It's not actually, it's super boring, but that's a separate issue. Um, (laughs) That's another show. Yeah, I I happen to think that all of the stuff that Lovecraft inspired is better than anything that he wrote himself. Um, but my point is, and the question that I wanted to ask is, um, should it be easier to separate an artist from their art and how we feel about their art, like based on format that we're consuming it in? Like, should we, should we be able to give people a pass if they are more if there's more distance between them and their art, like I'm not looking at Rowling on a screen. So should it be easier for me to say, I can still enjoy this because I don't really have to think about her while I'm reading it the same way that I would if I, like while I'm watching the Cosby show? Or is that a cop-out answer? Like if, God forbid, Michael Schur turned out to be a monster, it'd be like easier to watch those shows still because it's not, he's not the actor and his name isn't, like, it's not Michael Schur's The Good Place starring Michael Schur. Oh. I, I, again, like, God forbid this will never happen. He's a <laughs> lovely human being, I'm sure. But. <laughs> don't, yeah, don't. Well, yeah, except, right, don't that, it. except that Dan Harmon isn't. 
and Dan Harmon, I think, did still watch Community. Well, so uh, I I don't want to derail from your question, but I think this is somehow related. Uh, the answer I'm going to give. Um, you bring up Harmon, and we were talking about Louis C.K. earlier. I think that, but my, my my twofold answer is. I feel like we need to have a sense of proportionality in the way that we treat our problematic faves. And I also think that we need, like, as a, a society, to have a sense of, or, or like, a process for reconciliation um, where I don't think Louis C.K. has done the necessary um, apologies and penance to merit a comeback. Whereas I thought that the, um, I think it was a tweet storm or something that uh, Dan Harmon did in response to, to the story that came out around him was a good example of what what that should look like. He took ownership, um, acknowledged the fact that, like, what he did wasn't just shitty, but, like, had a deep impact on another human being in, in many ways um, and has seemed to, like have have tried to turn around from there um and i think he's the only person i can think of that has had any sort of i don't want to say successful but like actual arc like that where where so many of the other uh, terrible men are just like went away for a while and now are trying to come back without having done any of the necessary steps to um to, to earn that return. And then this can lead to the, the bigger discussion that we don't have time for of whether there should be any ability to earn a return. I I think there should be, but there needs to be a lot more of a, a lot more penance and a lot more like process for reconciliation for it. Um, and Martha, that barely answered your question because I kind of went off script there. Uh, <laughs> That's okay. Well, I actually, but... I... So... No, go ahead, please. No, I was going to I was going to change direction. So, please. Oh, I I well, I guess kind of I was too a little bit just because it you, it brings up an interesting point with what you were saying is that something I was questioning was uh I was thinking about James Gunn and is there a varying degree of what's acceptable and what isn't because here's a guy who admittedly said some stupid things but he was doing it for shock value and if you know him and you know his history it's not out of character for him and that was 10 years ago and that whole but thing now, was like some right-wing troll hatchet job but now it's but now it's affected him in such a way that he lost a, a rather um hefty position with marvel and has now been scooped up by dc which was a smart move on their part but you know here's somebody who's being who was vilified i thought kind of unjustly and yet, you know, it's it's part of the society today that if you're in the public eye, you're subject to, you know, in, insane amounts of scrutiny. And, you know, what J.K. Rowling did in my mind is kind of it's kind of stupid uh, for just to put it simply. I mean, you don't go back and change. It's like, you know, going back and making the Mona Lisa smile look a little bit better because it wasn't it wasn't enough to really convey what, you know, it should have. I mean, it's something you just don't do. Once the once you put your art out into the world, you leave it be. You don't. It, it is what it is. People yeah. don't love it because you tweak it and you make Jabba look more, you know, CGI'd. Uh, so, I, are there varying degrees? I I don't know. Um, definitely, Cosby is <laughs> the ultimate. 
But you were saying. Yeah, and I, I was just going to say, I, as far as J.K. Rowling goes, I think, like, her, her work, as I said, has its own issues that we didn't really get into. But the main thing that I think she is struggling with right now is that she doesn't know when it is she doesn't know when the correct response is to her is for her to apologize, say that she has heard the concerns people are bringing up and like given any demonstration that they mattered to her, she just doubles Mm -hmm. down Mm -hmm. on everything. Yeah. Um, I, I want to kind of re, I want to go back to focusing less on, um, no, not less on, I, I want to go back to talking more about our relationships with these works. Mm. Um, and just, I think the, the problem with the, the, the overall question, maybe not the problem, but the issue I'm saying the same thing, um, (laughs) is that (laughs) you almost have to look at each situation in the context of the situation itself. Like I said, if you look at Al Jolson, it's a little different than if you look at a Bill Cosby situation, because they're, it's a product of the time. It's like I said, it's time capsule. It is what it is. If you look at, at Louis CK, he did some bad things, but he didn't do what Bill Cosby did. So it's almost like you have to take each individual and judge them separately based on that. And then kind of come to your own conclusion about whether you still want to enjoy what they put out there. And it's hard to, I think it's harder to separate yourself when the person is like, like I said earlier, when you're watching Bill Cosby on the screen, it's a little harder to separate yourself than when you're reading a story where you're like, okay, well now Dumbledore is supposed to be gay, but in the books, that's never even implied. So, you know, it's a little easier to kind of separate yourself from that. So. Well, and Martha, you were talking about um, like our relationships with media. And I, I think there's a difference too, between media that's in stone and media that is on and artists that are still creating and Rowling's in a weird place where she's both. Um, I think about Kanye where like, I'm not going to buy or listen to future Kanye albums probably, but I still enjoy beautiful dark twisted fantasy because it's a good album. Um, and music, I always have like, I think I'm like the fuzziest with cause it's the media that I probably like interact with the most. Um, but like, this is a case where, the creator was always a, an asshole, but uh, now has gone off the deep end, I would argue. Um, and and because he's still putting out stuff, I can say I'm not going to like continue to support him going forward, but I already have stuff of his that I enjoy, and I'll keep listening to that. Um, similarly with Rowling, she created things that I enjoy back when I when I didn't know any of her opinions and, and didn't care. Uh, and I can say, going forward, I might not continue to support it, but that won't stop me from enjoying what I'm already consuming, which might be a total cop-out. No, I, I think that... I Ultimately, I think that that's the answer that a lot of us are going to come up with. Uh, one, of the, one of my inspirations for this episode, and Pete, you can tell me if you feel like this is a good place to end on or not, um... Bill, my husband, his Ender's Game mm. is a cornerstone book for him. It was one of the most impactful things that he read as a child. 
Um, and now we all know that Orson Scott Card is another horrible human being. Um, and one of the things that Bill has to grapple with is that a lot of the things that Orson Scott Card is horrible about are coded into Ender's Game. So, uh. like, how how do you deal with the fact that this book that you love has, like, homophobic and xenophobic messaging in it um, and an author who is still alive and tithing to the Mormon church? Uh, and I, I think that ultimately the answer is that we can take what was important to us as children. Like the Cosby show had a good message, like regardless of what is happening with Bill Cosby now, it did good things for a lot of people. And I don't think that that's invalidated just because of what is going on with Bill Cosby now, like those messages still meant something to people and that's still okay but also we can't use that as a way to avoid having the conversation about Bill Cosby now. Like it's not an excuse to avoid the conversation, um, but also we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to the stuff that we enjoyed and that meant something to us uh, growing up or even as adults. Continue consuming things you currently own. Do not buy things new from people who <laughs> turn out to be bad. <laughs> I don't think he's going to be putting out anything new except license plates at this point. Yeah, right. We solved it. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> what an easy answer for such a complex problem. Um, I think that's going to do it for us today. <laughs> Thank you, Joel, so much for joining us uh, on this episode. Uh, where can people find you on the internet, and what do you have to plug? Uh, well, as I mentioned, uh, 40 Going on 14 is uh, my main podcast that I do. Um, it's a weekly nostalgia cast. You can find it on 40go14.com, as well as all other uh, podcasting places. I also do um, an independent show, music-based show, called The Sunshine Happy Pants Hour, K-P-A-N-T-S. Uh, that is also available um, on all of your selected uh download mp3 podcasting sources and i also write uh, a horror blog called the creepercast that you can find at creepercast.com and um, if you like horror movies it is jam-packed full of daily updates with uh, uh currently we're doing a halloween retrospective we each picked two of our uh favorite of the the series and we wrote pieces on them well i shouldn't say favorites i know one of them picked one that is our least favorite but um <laughs> Those are coming out uh, once a week until Halloween. So um, feel free to go check that out. And that is all I got. Uh, Pete, how about you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, where I'm doing politics and pop culture as usual. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at MagicalMartha. Uh, and also, I have a newsletter now, which you can subscribe to. Um, I... I'm publishing it roughly twice a week. I missed last week because I was at a professional conference all week and I forgot that I was doing it. Uh, but I just released <laughs> a new issue today. So you can uh, sign up for that at tinyletter.com slash magicalmartha. Uh, I also make all of the issues available through my Twitter account. So you, if you're following me on Twitter, then you can just take a look at that. Uh, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at dydy 
H podcast. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook um, at Homework Podcast. Uh, and you can listen to us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, Apple Podcasts, wherever uh, fine podcasts are sold. Our next episode is actually coming out a week from this one. Uh, normally it's two weeks, but we are doing a special for Halloween. Uh, and it is all about what scares us. Uh, I will be assigning The Shining by Stephen King. Uh, Pete, what do you got for us? Um, being classic and I'm going with The Exorcist. Yes. And we will be joined by uh, Pete's friend, Michelle, who is assigning us Community Season 3, Episode 5, Horror Fiction in Seven Spooky Steps. Yeah. That is all I have for you today, uh, unless I'm missing anything obvious, Pete. I don't think so. All right. I just signed I... up for your newsletter. Yay! <laughs> I'm excited to fight with you in the next episode about The Shining book versus movie. Oh, I wish I could be there. <laughs> I was going to... Uh, for... Two guests. We'll talk. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right. That's going to do it for us today. Thank you for listening. Class dismissed.